Well, thank you for that instrumental, Chris. Great to have you back playing for us here at South Street. Well, when I was a freshman in college, I registered for a course called uh, Humanities, which was actually a whole a two-year series of classes um, for all liberal arts majors, of which I was one, uh, that combined history, literature, philosophy, and religion all in one two-year course. So you got a whole bunch of credits out of the way by just signing up for one course. I thought that sounded like a fairly painless way to get a bunch of credits, so I signed up. And the very first humanities class that fall was on ancient literature. And the very first week, we were assigned to read two books. One was called um, Beowulf, and the other was called The Epic of Gilgamesh. Have any of you heard of any, either of those? Well, at the time, I had, I had never, never heard of those. I had no idea what they were. Um, Beowulf, uh, it turns out, dates from about the 6th century and is the epic story in poetic form of a Scandinavian hero named Beowulf. I was actually kind of surprised to find out it was a person. I, I thought it might be like, you know, an actual wolf um, who battles a monster called Grendel, later kills a dragon. So pretty cool story. The Epic of Gilgamesh is also an epic poem dating back to 2000 B.C., tells the story of an ancient king of Mesopotamia, the details of which I have no chance of remembering. Uh, but at that point in my life, I'm not sure I had read a book, any book, all the way to the end. Um, so I was a bit lost uh, that, that first week. The first assignment then was to write a four-page paper on heroism in ancient literature. Now, that I thought, you know, I, I could get a handle on because I got the whole idea of, of heroism, heroes. You know, I knew about Superman and Batman and had my personal sports heroes like Jerry West and Pete Maravich. So I thought I could do this. All I did was figure out how these guys, Beowulf and Gilgamesh, were heroes. Now, my professor for that class was an, about an 80-year-old man named Dr. McGahee. Right at the end of his career, had been teaching forever. Um, and he was old school, wore a, wore a full suit and tie every day to class, uh, lectured in this really quiet voice, been, been teaching for a long time. And the rumor was that you would do just fine in his class if you just spelled your words correctly. He was a stickler for spelling. You could write pretty much anything on any paper. As long as you spelled your words right, you were going to do okay. So I thought, cool, I can do that. I'm a pretty good speller. So I went to work on my first college paper, and I was going to nail it. So I... I Studied as much as I knew how to study at that time. Came up with all my insights about heroism and ancient heroism. Wrote down my four-page handwritten paper. A few days later, the professor handed me back, and I was shocked to see a big red D on top of my paper. I couldn't believe I got a D on my first college paper. And then I noticed all the words circled in red in the paper. It turns out I had misspelled the word hero wrong 13 times <laughs> in a four-page paper. H-E-R-O-E, -E, like a sandwich. You know how sometimes a word just looks right when you write it down? Okay, so we are in the series now all summer long about heroes. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, we're calling the series By Faith. And the, the chapter is filled with these little snippets recounting the great heroes of faith from the Old Testament. Remember, and this is very important for today, remember the purpose of the writing of the letter to the Hebrews. The author is writing to encourage Jewish background followers of Jesus not to give up on their faith because they're going through a time of persecution. Rather, he's reminding them, encouraging them, Jesus is greater. He's the fulfillment of all the promises 
of God. So remember that. So far, we've seen, talked about Abel and Noah, two weeks on Abraham, and last week, Isaac and Jacob, where we saw that faith, that the faith in the promise of God has a, a generational impact. And now we move on to the next hero on the list. And today we're studying one verse, Hebrews 11, verse 22. Let me read it for you. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, if you know anything about Joseph's life, right about now you should be going, wait, 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 what? That, that's it? I mean, we have more about Joseph's life in the book of Genesis than almost any other character. His life story covers Genesis 37 to chapter 50. That's 14 full chapters. In fact, Joseph is arguably the most heroic figure of the entire Old Testament saga. And this is what we have in Hebrews? One verse about the exodus and bones? So what's going on here? I think we need to assume two things as we start. First, the writer of Hebrews is assuming that his readers all know the story of Joseph. After all, they were Hebrews, and they would have known what we call Genesis uh, backwards and forwards. They would have known all the stories. Secondly, I think we can assume that the writer of Hebrews mentions these two things for a reason. So our job today is to figure out why. We're going to look at three things. First, Joseph lived by faith. Then Joseph encouraged by faith. And Joseph, thirdly, died in faith. First, Joseph lived by faith. I don't know about you, but I, I love stories about people who overcome obstacles in their lives. Uh, just last week, I came across this really interesting little story. It was on the news. A young woman named Carson Pickett, who was born without half of her left arm, and eventually, today, made the U.S. national soccer team will play in the Olympics for our nation. Inspirational story about a, a young woman who, who overcame her limitations, or what some see as limitations, to achieve her dream. Inspiring story. Or maybe the more familiar story you might remember and know about is the story of Abraham Lincoln. Just cover it briefly. Born into relative poverty, self-educated, experienced a whole number of business and personal and political disappointments, experienced devastating personal losses, Lost his own mother when he was nine years old. Lost a sweetheart, uh, Ann Rutledge, when he was 24. Lost a son, Edward, when little Edward was only three. Lost his son, Willie, when Willie was 11. Suffered bouts of depression throughout his life. But Lincoln overcame those things to become one of the most respected and revered presidents in United States history. So what do we know about Joseph's life? First, let's remember where we are in the Old Testament story. This is after the flood. And when God was going to bring, then bring salvation to the world, he chose a man named Abraham and gave him a covenant promise, a great promise that we saw in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. Now, Abraham passed this covenant promise on to his son Isaac. Isaac passed it on to his son Jacob. And Jacob has passed it on to his son Joseph. And that's where we are in the story. Now, we also know that Joseph grew up in a rather complicated family. He was the 11th of 12 sons born to Jacob's two wives and his wives' two servant girls. Okay, that's right. Jacob had 13 children. 
12 sons and one daughter with four different women. Now, that's a whole story for a whole different time, uh, but at least we can say it was a complicated family. We know that Joseph was Jacob's favorite child because he was the first son born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. So it seems that Jacob actually repeated the whole issue of favoritism that he grew up with in his family because Isaac loved Esau best and his mother, Rebekah, loved him best. Also not a good idea and complicates the family structure. Jacob, uh, Joseph's father, made no secret of his special love for Joseph by giving him the famous multicolored coat, coat of many colors, uh, which simply set him apart uh, from all the other brothers that Jacob did not give uh, a fancy coat to. So naturally, Joseph's brothers resented him for his much-favored status. We read about, read about this in Genesis 37. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. There it is. Because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. We also know that Joseph had this unusual ability, turns out to be a gift from God, to understand and interpret dreams. And when he shared his own dreams with his brothers, uh, dreams that showed them bowing down to him, they hated him all the more. We read in Genesis 37 as well. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Maybe he should have kept that dream to himself. I'm not sure. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, if you know the story, you kind of know what happens next. Let me summarize. Uh, the brothers first decide to just go ahead and kill Joseph because they hated him. Then they change their mind and uh, decide instead to sell him as a slave to some Midianite traders. Uh, Midianites were, were a, a marauding group that traveled back and forth, forth through that area. And Joseph becomes an ancient victim of what we could now call human trafficking. The Midianites, in turn, sell him again to an Egyptian high official named Potiphar. But we see in the story, Joseph serves Potiphar very well. Eventually, Potiphar trusts him to run his whole household. We read that story in Genesis 39. Follow along. When his master, that's Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him. Notice, this is an Egyptian seeing that the Hebrew God is with this Hebrew young man. That the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he trusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. But the Bible says Joseph was also well-built and handsome. That's exactly the phrase. He was well-built and handsome. Kind of like a young Pastor Jeff. Don't tell him I said that, okay? <laughs> and Potiphar's wife eventually tries to seduce him. But Joseph was a man of great integrity and refused her advances, fleeing from her. But she reacts to his refusal by accusing him of what we would today call sexual assault. And Potiphar then has Joseph thrown in prison. So Joseph is punished unjustly for doing what is right in the eyes of God. So we know by faith, Joseph endured injustice and hardship. He was hated by his brothers, being sold into slavery, falsely accused, and being thrown into prison. 
But that's not what Hebrews focuses on. Skips over all that. We also know that by faith, Joseph then prospers greatly. He languishes in that Egyptian prison for like two years, and while he's in prison, he continues to serve others and display integrity, and we see that the Lord is with them. We keep reading that phrase, the Lord was with them, and eventually he interprets the dreams of a couple fellow inmates. Then Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh at that time was likely a man named, uh, I can't say this right, Sesostris III, during what's called the Middle Empire of Egypt, roughly 1800 B.C. or so. This is a real guy in real history. Uh, he has his own disturbing dreams. And he hears that there's this Hebrew uh, prisoner who has an uncanny ability to interpret. So Pharaoh calls him out of prison. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. We see that story in Genesis 41. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now this is not the God of the Egyptians, Ra, the sun god. This is the God of the Hebrews. So Pharaoh knows this other God is with this man. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. So Joseph rises to second in command of all of Egypt, one of the most powerful men in the world at that time, with access to almost unimaginable wealth, unimaginable comfort, and unimaginable power. And then he leads Egypt through seven years of prosperity, followed by seven years of drought, and due to his wise and shrewd management, Egypt is not only prepared and has enough food for themselves during the drought, but can actually feed uh, people from other lands as well. And eventually, this includes, includes his own family, who traveled down from Canaan seeking food to escape starvation. So we see that by faith, Joseph prospers, saves his entire family from starvation. And then we see by faith, he eventually forgives his brothers for what they did to him years before. By faith, he sees God's hand in it all. The famous words of Genesis 50, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All this Joseph did by faith. But Hebrews 11 mentions none of this. So what is Hebrews actually saying and why? That leads us to the second point today, that Joseph encouraged by faith. He lived by faith in hardship and prosperity, and he now encourages by faith. As I was preparing um, this week, uh, I can't remember what I was even looking for, but I came across several internet lists of famous last words from famous people. Uh, here's just a couple of examples. The last words of Winston Churchill. I'm so bored with it all, he said. Uh, the very last and very sad words of Hollywood actress Joan Crawford. Don't you dare ask God to help me. That's sad. Harriet Tubman, known for leading former slaves to freedom through the Underground Railroad, was actually singing with her family, and her last words were, swing low, sweet chariot. The hero of 9-11, one of them, Todd Beamer, who was from Wheaton, famously said, let's roll. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says about Joseph's last words. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. There it is. 
First thing we notice is similarities with what has already been said in Hebrews 11 about Isaac and Jacob, Jacob, who were also at the end of their lives, at the end of his life. In other words, his last words, what he was leaving his descendants with. And then the writer says, Joseph says two things before he died. He made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and he gave directions concerning his bones. Now, clearly, the writer of Hebrews uh, is putting great importance on just these two things. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Why was this so important? I have to go back to the Genesis story, Genesis chapter 50. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Okay, so here's what I noticed. Twice, and I put it in red for you, I think, Joseph says, God will visit you. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land where he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's reminding them of God's promise. He's encouraging them by faith. How so? Well, to remember, we have to remember uh, a couple of things here. Remember that God made a promise to Abraham, his covenant promise, to make him a great nation, to give his descendants a land that we call the promised land, the land of Canaan, and to bless the world through him. But second, let's look back at a small passage in Genesis chapter 15. After God makes this promise to Abraham, he says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. I think Joseph knew what God had told Abraham. He knew both the promise of the land and he knew that before the descendants of Abraham would inhabit that land fully and would know the promise, they would be sojourners in a land that was not theirs and they would be servants and afflicted for 400 years. And Joseph also knew that God would one day visit them and deliver them. So Joseph here, who has reached unimaginable success in Egypt, who's been able to save his whole family from starvation and countless others, and he's speaking here as a prophet of sorts. He's saying that even though life in Egypt is good now, and it was good for the Hebrew people then, they had plenty of food, their guy Joseph was in charge. He's saying even though it's good now, it will not always be so. 400 years of affliction are coming. So when, God says, when Joseph says, God will visit you, he's speaking prophetically about what we call the exodus, God's deliverance of his people. He wants his brothers and his descendants to know three things here. First, Egypt is not their home. No matter how prosperous they are now, no matter what affliction may come in the years ahead, no matter how long they are in Egypt, it is not their home because God has promised. Secondly, he wants them to know that the affliction of slavery will not be their final destination. We know that after Joseph's death, uh, eventually there came another pharaoh, probably Ramses II, historians tell us, who did not remember Joseph. 
and who feared the growing population of the Hebrews and who decided to enslave them as a workforce. We see this in Exodus chapter 1. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, new Pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And this bondage in Egypt lasted for some 400 years. And Joseph knew this time of affliction was coming, but he says, thirdly, God will visit you. And we know the story, which we're going to look at more in the next couple of weeks with the story of Moses, how God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. God sends ten plagues on the Egyptians, culminating with the angel of death and the whole Passover story. And God visits and delivers his people. And so with his dying words, Joseph encourages his descendants by faith to trust in God's promise. Whether in hardship, whether in prosperity, Egypt is not their home because God has promised. That leads us to the third point in this verse, that is, Joseph died in faith. Joseph died in faith. Over the years, of course, I've done uh, many, many funerals and gravesides, and I'm, I, I know that many families uh, make special requests and have plans for that moment, for their loved one to be uh, buried in a family plot or maybe in a military cemetery or just some unique sort of instructions. But over the years, I've also sort of paid attention uh, through the wonders of the Internet to other unusual um, requests for interment. For example, uh, do you know the name Gene Roddenberry? Anyone? I did not know. Okay. <laughs> he was, this guy was the creator of the TV show Star Trek, uh, and in 1997, his ashes were the first human remains to be shot into space on a rocket ship. Now, he was not a believer. In fact, he was a skeptic, and atheist, and he th- think he thought that was going to somehow bring him closer to the universe. Uh, turns out that his ashes sort of burned up when they came back into orbit, but that's a whole different story. Did you know there was actually a company, the same company that shot him into space, called Celestis, that will send your remains into space for free? You can do this. You can go to their website. If you want to be shot into Earth orbit, it's about $5,000. But if that's not far enough, you want to go into deep space, $12,500 is the ticket. You can be shot into deep space and be out there forever, just so you know. Or how many have ever heard of a guy named Frederick Bauer? I'd never heard of this guy either. But have you heard of Pringles? Right? We've heard of Pringles. Well, Frederick Bauer uh, invented the Pringles can in 1966 to help Procter & Gamble ship their new chips without using bags. And when he died... At age 89, in 2008, his children honored his wishes by, you guessed it, interring his ashes in a Pringles can, at least part of them. Um, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. By the way, I meant to do that just to creep you out a little bit, but that's (laughs) just, just a few Pringles left. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. That makes us ask, what exactly were the instructions? Do we have them somewhere? We do. Genesis chapter 50. 
Then, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in the coffin in Egypt. So what's going on here? Why does it matter? Joseph was dying. He had achieved in incredible uh, position, power, wealth, and success in Egypt. He's serving as second in command for something like 60 or 70 years. For the, the, the greater proportion, portion of his life. But he doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. <coughs> he doesn't want his body uh, to be entombed in a fancy pyramid, which is what they would have done for a guy of his status. He doesn't want to be shot into outer space. He makes it very clear he wants his bones to be taken back to the promised land. Now notice the Bible says Joseph was, his body was embalmed. This is likely the ancient Egyptian practice of what we would call mummification. It's what the Egyptians did. It took 40 days to accomplish. Only two people in the Bible are mentioned as being embalmed, Joseph and Jacob, because they both died in Egypt and then were shipped back home. Why did this take place? Why were these Joseph's instructions? First, Egypt was not his home. Just as he had told the people, Egypt is not your home, it was not his home. He knew it was his assignment that by faith he understood God had placed him there for a reason, for a purpose, that he was there uh, to be able to, to bring salvation and, and to save many, many people from starvation. He knew that Egypt, however, was not his home. His home was in the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Secondly, he trusted the promise of God. Joseph knew the promises of God. He knew the covenant that God had given his great-great-grandfather Abraham and that Abraham had given into his great-grandfather Isaac and that Isaac had passed on to his father uh, Jacob. And he trusted that God would do what God had promised to do. But thirdly, and this is just how I read it, thirdly, I think Joseph wanted his bones to be a symbol of hope. A symbol of hope. Some 400 years later, when Moses finally led the people of God out of Egypt, the great Exodus, we read, Exodus chapter 13, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Later, after Moses dies and Joshua is leading, Joshua chapter 24, and Joseph's bones which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried in Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob had bought for 100 pieces of silver. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. So wrap your mind around this. This means that for all 400 years of their bitter enslavement under the pharaohs that came to power following the death of Joseph, the Hebrew people kept track of Joseph's bones means when they escaped from Egypt in the middle of the night, after the angel of death passed over their homes, they took Joseph's coffin with them. And when they wandered in the desert for 40 years, following the pillar of fire by night and the cloud of smoke by day, they carried Joseph's bones with them. Imagine with me. How many times in all those years do you think someone said, why are we carrying this with us again? Why are we dragging this box around again? Or how many times did a child ask their parent, Who, who's Joseph and why is he in the box? 
Imagine. I think Joseph knew that if he allowed himself to be buried in Egypt or put into a giant pyramid, the promise of God might be forgotten, might be buried with him. But if they kept his body above ground, if they kept his bones in a coffin, if they made it portable that they could take with them, then they would remember the promise of God because Joseph trusted the promise of God. Even in death, he wanted to proclaim his faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So why does this matter to us? The single verse in the New Testament, in Hebrews, written to Jewish background believers, why does it matter to us? Well, I'm pretty sure that everyone in this room, pretty much everyone in the room today, knows that life brings both hardship, challenges to be overcome, and prosperity brings sorrow, brings pain, brings joy, brings sickness, brings health. And sometimes the promise of faith seems far, far away. And maybe, maybe you're at that place now. Maybe you've been there recently. Maybe you will be in that place where faith seems far, far away. Through this one verse, Joseph is reminding us, God is reminding us that this is not our home. In a way, we're all living in Egypt. We're strangers and sojourners and exiles in this land. Your destiny is not what's happening to you right now. However good it might be, however prosperous you might be, or however how much you might be suffering, God will visit you, is the promise. God will visit you. We know through our perspective God has visited us in Jesus. Now remember the purpose of the letter up to the Hebrews. That is, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our destiny. And when we come to the end of our days, Jesus is the one who takes us home. Because our home is with him. You bow as we close today. Lord, thank you today for your word. Thank you for this single, strange little verse that points us back to a man of great faith who trusted you in hardship and suffering, who trusted you in great prosperity, and who even in his death points us to the great promise of our faith, that you will visit us, that you have visited us, and that's our destiny. Our home is in Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.